If you have your Bibles, we're going to use as our text this morning the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read the first nine verses for us in just a moment. Let me just set this up this way. I heard a singer-songwriter theorize that in every room there's a song. And if you come into the room maybe early when there's not any noise in the room, and if you listen carefully, you might hear it. And if you can hear this song, you could just dictate it and then give it to the world. The theory being that every song that has ever been written or will ever be written has already been written. And they're just there, if you can hear it. Now, there's an application today because I do think there's a question in the air, a question. Now, there's a vast multiplicity of questions that God could ask us, yep, but there is a question that hangs in the air. Until we posture ourselves in a certain way, we might not be able to hear it. So could I encourage you just to listen? Because it's, right, it's right, just right there. The question of God. All right, once again, Isaiah chapter 6. Our custom is to stand to honor the authority of God's word when we hear it read. As you're able, thank you for doing that. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts, the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. And may God inspire and instruct us today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, the massiveness of the building, the temple in Jerusalem, lent to its sense of awe. Its emptiness that night lent to its sense of loneliness. He stood in the corner of this greatest building, not only in Israel, but of the entire Middle East. The Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem was touted as one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. He had entered at a time perhaps inappropriate. It was at night, but he had access because he was a young priest, this Isaiah. There were a few people milling about at the front, one keeping the flame going, another burning incense. 
the smell of it distant yet pungent to his nostrils. And as Isaiah stood in this empty building, loneliness and doubt and disillusionment swept over him. See, it was a terrible moment for him personally and for the nation at large. He, he this, this king, had risen to prominence on the wave of hope provided by the opportunity to rule. And young Uzziah had brought momentary resurgence to the nation. Now, it wasn't a full-blown revival, but there was an uptick in the nation, militarily, socially, spiritually, economically. Life was good in the early years of the reign of Uzziah. And furthermore, he was good to the priesthood, which wasn't always the case in Israel's history. And so young Isaiah admired Uzziah. He, he not only admired him, but he wanted to be like him. But as is often the case with people who find themselves in power, Uzziah began to erode in his character. One compromise, small at first, then larger compromises leading to arrogancy of heart, pride of life, and then finally he died. So this young priest, Isaiah, he's risen on the hopes of this king, but now at the point of Uzziah's death, he's worried about the future. What's going to be next? Who's going to be the next ruler? Uh, we don't know what kind of character the next person might be. And so he didn't know where he might pin his hopes for the future. So he stands there with his back against the wall, looking at this expanse, all the trappings, all the setting, all the finery of the central place of religious life in the nation of Israel, and yet there is despair and loneliness and confusion. If he called out to God that night, probably all he would have heard was the echo of his own voice. God, are you here? Here, here, here. Let me just say, friends, that there will be moments in your life that will mark you. They will be milestones in your life. I can generalize this. There are people alive right now and in our congregation who can remember where they were and what they were doing when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. My generation, the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, we can tell you almost to a person where we were and what we were doing when we heard the news of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. For the millennials, it was Columbine. For all of us, 9-11. For the most young among us, one terrorist act, one mass shooting or another marked our lives. We were impacted by it. Issues, moments beyond our comprehension and certainly beyond our control. For Isaiah, the young priest, still unknown to the nation, not yet a prophet, alone in the temple, he marked the beginning of God's intervention in his life by suggesting the year King Uzziah died. The year King Uzziah died. A day of national distress, a day of national disillusionment, a day of death. And now one of the things that keeps us from hearing the question of God, that keeps us from answering the question that demands an answer in our lives is the obfuscation. It's the clouds of confusion created by current events, created by the stresses of life, because stuff happens. Happens in your life, happens in my life. It's, a, it's, the, it's the family, it's the finances, it's the stresses, it's the fatigue, it's the emptiness. See, in the year King Udiah died, and you can add to that whatever 
is current in your life. The year I went through a divorce. The year I struggled with depression. In the year my job was lost. My business bottomed out. In the year my child died. All of that can just get so thick in the air, so noisy, we can't hear the question. Can't hear the question. But the question is in the room. The question is in this room right now. The question is here. It's floor to ceiling, wall to wall, hovering over this room and over you, where you are seated. It's hovering over this ministry campus. It's everywhere. The question is in your car. The question is in your house. But the noise, the roar of the ground noise can block out the question so you can't hear it. For Isaiah, what was blocking his vision and stopping up his ears was the death of Uzziah. But then in the next phrase, the, the prophet Isaiah then gives us some insight, gives us some perspective. He said, in the year King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord. Now, that's an important contrast. We know that there are issues in the world. There's war, there's pestilence, there's famine, there's strife, there's evil of all sorts and varieties. We're not blind. Denial is not faith. We get it. The world's a tough place. We can see reality. It may be that worship is difficult today because your loved one is dying of cancer. Okay. Denial is not faith. We got it. But Isaiah said, I also saw the Lord. Now, in every great moment of hearing an important question from God, it begins with seeing a fresh revelation of who God is over and above the trials of life. No matter what we go through and no matter how long the season, no matter how difficult the trial, there is always hope. And the hope is found in the knowledge, the perspective that our God is alive and he is still on his throne and he is active in our world. Oh, yeah. But you'll rarely hear the question of God until you've seen a fresh revelation of who God is. Now, God will always reveal himself before he reveals his will. He'll reveal himself before he reveals his word. He summons you into his presence before he will ask you the question. Now, there are three things that Isaiah saw. You want to write this down. They're very simple. Number one, Isaiah saw God. He saw God. Now, what does he see? He sees God high and lifted up. These, this is his description. He has this anthropomorphic vision of Almighty God. It's a theophany. He, he sees God. His train, the train of his robe, fills the temple. Isaiah sees this robe cover the vast expanse of this great religious center. Think about it. The, the biggest, grandest place of religion in the world, and the train of God's robe fills the whole place. This is a big deal. Angels are mentioned. They are described as seraphim. The only place we find seraphim mentioned. These are uniquely designed creatures of God, designed specifically to dwell in the presence of God. They are described as creatures with six wings. With two of their wings, they cover their face. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. And with two of their wings, they fly. In other words, even though they are these magnificent creatures, resplendent in glory, they are, they are the magnificent sons of God. Do you understand? These are not little fat-bellied Tinkerbell angels. These are not little, little wispy angels, you know, flying around with a harp. These are the terrifying sons of God. 
And yet, even these magnificent creatures designed specifically to be in the presence of God, they realize that they are fit neither to see God nor to be seen by him. And they call out to one another, holy. The other one says, yes, he's holy. The other one says in antiphonal response, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Yes, the whole earth is filled with his glory. It's awesome. At the voice of these angels, the threshold of the temple begins to shake. The doors threaten to come off the hinges. Isaiah is traumatized. He's terrorized by this experience. And the whole place begins to fill with smoke. In other words, the manifest presence of the glory, tangible presence of the glory of God begins to fill the place. It's awesome. Now remember, this isn't the voice of God. This is merely the voice of angels. Can you imagine what Isaiah is thinking? He's terrorized by the voice of angels. He's thinking, please, God, don't say a word. Isaiah then looks above the trials and tribulations of his life. He then looks above the angels and above the sound and all the pyrotechnics, and he looks to God. It does not say in the year King Uzziah died, I saw angels. It says in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Hmm. He was high and lifted up. Note the contrast here. Uzziah is dead and in his grave, but the Lord is very much alive. The throne of Israel was empty, but the throne of heaven is occupied. Uzziah is dead and gone, but God is very much alive and present. Uzziah had disappointed me, but God is holy. Hmm. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah lifted his gaze above the plane of the world, above the angelic strata, and saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up. Listen, if you want to hear the question of God, then first ask for a vision of the ultimate reality of the transcendent, resplendent glory of Almighty God. It's one of my fears. And I use the word fear thoughtfully. One of my great fears alive in this moment in history is that so many people in our world, even those other Christian people, and let me qualify this by saying I don't know who's a Christian and who isn't. I don't know who's going to heaven and who isn't. I don't know. It's not my job, not my role, not my function, not my deal. I know I'm going to heaven. I know why I'm going to heaven because I've applied perfected work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. I have received by faith this gift, this grace of eternal life. I realize it's nothing that I have done or will ever do. I do not deserve, earn, or have I earned eternal life. But God has given it to me as a gift, and I've received it by faith. And I know I've received it because of the assurance that I have in my heart by the Holy Spirit that I belong to God. You can have that same assurance before you leave this room today. But having said that, I don't know who's going to heaven because I don't. There will be people in heaven, I'm sure, that I did not expect to see there. There will be people that I expected to see there who will not be there, I suspect. And so here's my fear. My fear is that so many people in our world, even folks who carry the moniker Christian in our world, 
have made of God a construct. They have created God in their own mind. He is a, he is a construct created to give some context for their worldview which allows them to then embrace a particular political position or social position or personal lifestyle position, and so that we have created a God in our own image. We have imagined a God who is just like a big human being or something. He is just like us. And I just want to submit to you today, this is not the God that Isaiah laid eyes on in his vision. The God that we serve the God as he is, is a God who dwells in light. He is a consuming fire. And we are left to believe that he is holy. Holy, holy. And all the earth is filled with his glory. He is an awesome God. And he is not to be trifled with. He is not to be conformed and shaped and transformed into our image we, rather, are to submit and to conform to his image. That's where the amen goes in the sermon, if you're paying attention. So Isaiah saw God. Now, here's the second thing Isaiah sees. Write it down. Isaiah saw himself. He saw himself. Verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe! Woe, woe! Woe is me! I am ruined, he said. I am undone. The Hebrew there says, all my joints have let go. My shoulders have fallen out. My elbow has let go. My hips won't work. In other words, I'm melting. I'm paralyzed. I can't function. Uh, in the modern vernacular in our culture, it would be, I'm falling to pieces. I'm coming undone. I'm coming unglued. I'm having a nervous breakdown. I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, this is a symbol of the sin of his culture not just his speech, but of life in total. We, we live in a nation, we can all agree to this, where our words are polluted, our lips are covered in evil, our eyes are corrupt, our minds are corrupt, our spirits are corrupt, I am corrupt. We all have to admit this. I am not that much different than the people I know living far from God. I am not that much different than the amoral personalities that we see on television and other media resources. We are corrupt. I am corrupt. And Isaiah does not excuse himself. And neither should we. He sees himself as part of a culture, a generational corruption. And we are not all that different. So Isaiah presents himself before God in brokenhearted confession. Oh God, whoa. Oh God, compared to you, compared to, to your holiness, Compared to who you really are, I am undone. I am without hope. I am without excuse. So before our ears can be open, first our eyes have to be open and our mouths have to be clean. And so here is what happens. There's an interesting moment. The seraphim, one of these magnificent creatures, they take from the altar of God a hot coal with tongs. But now when the seraphim delivers the coal to Isaiah, the angel's holding it in their hand. It's an interesting transition, isn't it? If he's going to deliver it in his hand to Isaiah, why not just take it from the altar with his hand? If it's too hot to touch, too holy to touch with your hands and you take it with your tongs, then why not deliver it to Isaiah with the tongs? We're left to speculate. 
This is what I think. I think that the angel knows, and God makes provision for, that his sanctifying fire is so great, it is so powerful, that if it were to touch our humanity, we would, we would be dissolved. We would perish. And yet God and this angel knows that our humanity is so tender, so vulnerable, that we require a personal touch, an intimate grace. And so the angel removes this hot coal of God's sanctifying, forgiving grace and with, delivers it from, from the altar with tongs. And then as he moves toward Isaiah, he has it in his hands because of this touch. Can I just say we serve an awesome God? He is a wonderful God. Wonderful. Wonder God. You are wonderful. You are a wonder to us. So great and yet so tender. Oh. Who wouldn't want to know this God? Who wouldn't want to serve this God? He is so good. So Isaiah sees himself. Now imagine yourself in Isaiah's sandals. I mean, you're there maybe now in the fetal position. <laughs> in the corner because of all this drama. And now he sees this, this seraphim, and again, this isn't, a, this isn't a, a weakling. This thing is coming to you with a hot coal. Now, I would assume the first instinct is to jump and run. Run! Because this can't be safe. This can't be easy. And yet Isaiah stays, and, and, and at some point, Isaiah comes to terms with the moment that is about to approach him. And he, he resigns himself to this idea. This may kill me, but I'm going to stay here and take it. C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, a fascinating allegory. It's the story of people in hell who load up on a bus and take a day tour to heaven. This is the sanctified imagination of C.S. Lewis. And as the bus arrives at heaven, one man on the bus steps out, meets the man who had murdered him. So the guy who has been murdered is in hell on the bus arriving in heaven, and he steps out to meet the man who murdered him, who's in heaven. <laughs> the murderer, after sending this man to hell, had sought forgiveness and is now in heaven. He says to the man, you can stay here in heaven. You don't have to go back to hell. There's this one condition. All you have to do is forgive me. If you forgive me for killing you, you're free to stay in heaven. <laughs> And so the guy says, I'm not going to give you forgiveness. And the man says, no, you can't give me forgiveness. See, I'm already forgiven. That's why I'm here. I'm in heaven. And the murdered man says, well, if the condition for going to heaven is forgiving the guy who murdered me, then God is unjust. This moment is unjust, and I'd rather go to hell. He gets back on the bus. Most of the people on the bus from hell choose to go back to hell. One is a bishop who's leading a Bible study in hell. One of his former students says, Bishop, you don't have to go back to hell. You can stay here in heaven with us. The bishop asks, do I get to teach a Bible study up here? Well, no. What would you teach? We live in the presence of God. We live in the presence of truth. What would you teach? And the, Bible, and the, and the bishop says, if I can't be allowed to have valid intellectual challenge to all the fundamental issues of the faith, if I'm not permitted to go on with my ministry, then I would rather return to hell. 
And the student says, then you've made ministry your God. The bishop gets back on the bus, returns to hell. The bishop concludes, I quote Lewis, I want to live challenging truth rather than live and walk in the presence of truth. How corrupt are we? How corrupt are we? Intellectually proud, spiritually arrogant. I'm a very spiritual person. All my smarty pants friends in the room today, listen to me. Intellectual pride and spiritual pride will send you to hell faster than anything else you can do. God only gives grace to the humble. Glad I'm not smart. It's easier for me. But there's one young man gets off the bus. He's met by an angel with a flaming sword. The angel says, you can stay, but you have to allow me to cut that lizard off your back. <laughs> For attached to his back by its claws was a living lizard, you know, tail slithering. Ugh. It'd been there so long that the boy's flesh had grown over its claws. It was no longer possible to tell where the boy ended and the lizard began. The boy asked, will it hurt? The angel replies, it will hurt worse than anything you have ever experienced in your whole life. It will be a moment of blinding, searing, unimaginable pain. But it won't kill you. And when it's over, you'll be allowed to stay. The boy trembles in agony. The thought of being separated from that horrible, ugly thing that has become part of his life, that has been there so long that it's now part of his life, ingrown in his flesh. And he trembles at the thought of what the agony of this sanctified separation might be like. And that's what Isaiah must have felt as that coal is being carried by the seraphim closer and closer. How is this horrible thing going to burn? And the boy says finally, okay, slay the beast. And whack! <laughs> the angel severs this beast from the back of the boy and he immediately drops to his knees in agonizing pain. He's clutching at his back and screaming in pain and the beast falls at the boy's feet and begins to shrivel and shrink and dissolve. But then immediately out of that emerges and rises up out of this, out of this heap, this beautiful white stallion and the boy now wounded and in pain but still alive mounts this beautiful steed and rides into the purple hills of heaven. Wow. Don't you see it? Don't you understand? It means that those parts of our lives that are so corrupt and so much part of us leaves us more willing to allow it to remain than to experience the pain of its removal. And you 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 and you, you, you up there, you, 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 and me, all of us, make this choice very often. No thanks. I'd rather, just, I'd rather just stay in my pain than endure the suffering required to be healed of it. But if we will allow God to touch our mouth with that hot coal, now God will not lie to you Will this hurt? You have no idea. Will this cost me? Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but I want to 
just speak for myself for a moment. I am finished. I am tired. I'm sick and tired of a costless Christianity. I'm tired of people saying that it's going to be easy. Just invite Jesus into your life, and you'll go from glory to glory, and your life will be filled with peace. I don't know, but that's not been my life. That's not how it's worked out for me. Oh, you don't have to give up anything to be a Christian. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You have to give up everything. Well, God won't take anything from you. Yes, he will. He'll take your will, your life, your ego, your pride, your possessions, your family, your future, your destiny, just minor things like that. <laughs> well, I don't believe in a painful Christianity. I don't believe in any other kind. I don't believe in any other kind. There will be a moment when the angel is flying toward you with that hot coal, and you will have to decide, do I stand here and receive or do I run? Now, remember, though, remember, if you leave, if you run, if you resist, you'll never hear the question. You'll never hear it. And Isaiah says, okay, go ahead and touch me. He braces and shh, steam comes off of his face. And he goes, oh, this, is, this has got to burn. But then he realizes, no, it's, it's not burning my flesh. All that's burned away from him is only that which is unclean out of his life. The angel says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Your iniquity is gone. Now, now, Isaiah has ears to hear. And he sees the third thing. Write this down. He sees the world. He sees the world. Watch it now. His eyes are open. His mouth is cleansed. The angel now silent. Isaiah's spiritual ears are open. And from back over his shoulder, you know, maybe he's turned away and wondering what's happened. He's still down on the floor kind of in a, in a, in a heap. But now back over his shoulder, now for the first time, he hears loud and clear. Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Well, the question was there all the time. The question's been in the room all the time. The question's been in your life all the time. But you have to have ears to hear it. You have to see God clearly. You have to see yourself in light of his glory and your need for his touch. And then you'll have ears to hear the question. Suddenly the scene shifts. The point of view is no longer Isaiah, nor the angels. Now it is the image and voice of God. Almighty God's plan, almighty God's purpose, almighty God's word, God's almighty destiny for your life. Now you can hear the question, who will go? Can you hear it? Can you hear it? Maybe the Christian musician author is right. Maybe all the melodies to be written have already been written. They're floating in the air waiting. Isaiah then hears the question. What is God asking? He's just saying, I just need someone to tell my children I love them. I just need a construction guy to tell his coworker about Jesus. That's it. Just need a waitress to smile and remind a downhearted customer, hey, has anyone told you that God is on your side? Just uh, need to send a 
guy or gal into a business culture and reflect my values and character, not only to his employees, but also to her customers as well. I need someone I can send into the public school to reflect Christ. I need a pastor. I need a missionary. I need a church planter who will say yes and will go for me. I need someone else to step forward and say, I'll pay for that. I'll fund that. I'll make a difference. God says, I need a surgeon who will look across the desk and say to the patient, you're inoperable. It's terminal. May I pray for you? You can get yourself another surgeon. You can't find another savior. Isaiah then steps out into the wide expanse of the temple and he says, Lord, look, I'm not much. You know better than I. I got all these flaws, all these wounds, all this pain, all these issues, all this baggage. I got stuff. And so I'm not much. But if you could possibly use someone like me, here I am. Send me. This isn't, put me in, coach. I'm your guy. No, no. No, this is, a, this is a young prophet with his hat in his hand who has perspective now because he's seen God. And he's self-aware. And he humbly presents himself to be used of God. Can you hear the question? I don't care who you are. I don't care what your story is. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. I don't care how firm you are or infirm you are. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care how much you've overcome or how little you've overcome. God has a place and a plan and a purpose and a calling for you. I'm talking to you. In this great big world, that God wants to love, he has a role for you to make a difference. Can you hear the question? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes? I want to ask the question now. If you've heard the question and you're ready to take a step that says, yeah, I want to make myself available to be used of God. I'll go wherever he sends me. I will. I'll do whatever he calls me to, with whomever, wherever. I'll bloom where I'm planted. I, 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 before God, when I go to work in the morning, I'm going to make a difference in someone's life. When I go to school in a few weeks, I'm going to make a difference in people's lives. If that's true for you, would you just raise your hand? Now, don't raise your hand if you're not serious about this. Listen, I raised my hand like this about 50 years ago. And it'll cost you. Wonderful. Now, Lord, hear our prayer and touch your people. Touch our lips. We are unclean. We dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. But we want to see Jesus. And so we fix our eyes on him and submit ourselves for his work. In his holy name we pray. And everyone said.
Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?